I'm Susan Moran. And I'm Daniel Strain. This is KGN News How on Earth, the show that makes you smarter. Today is Tuesday, June 30th, 2015. Coming up, we'll talk about food and the impact of processed foods on our health and the health of the planet with writer Megan Kimball. Her new book is called Unprocessed, My City-Dwelling Year of Reclaiming Real Food. And wildlife biologist Sam Drogi will tell us about shooting close-up photos of bees and the importance of bee diversity. Let's start with some of the science headlines. You could call it the abominable snow crab. A team of British scientists have discovered a new species of yeti crab. These crustaceans get their name for their white color and the hairy bristles that grow on their limbs. It makes them look, yes, a bit like the shaggy snowmen of myth. But what's really interesting about these new crabs, only the third species of yeti crab described so far, is their digs. The scientists found the animals living thousands of feet below the surface of the southern ocean. The ocean encircles Antarctica, and it's a harsh environment. Here in the deep ocean, water temperatures hover right around freezing. To survive, the several inch-long crabs cluster around hydrothermal vents, or volcano-like fissures that spit out piping hot water. It's a bit like cozying up in a hot tub on a snowy day. In fact, right near the vents, the researchers found that per square meter, there could be hundreds to thousands of these animals squished together, what amounts to one big polar pileup. The study about the new species of yeti crab, which goes by the scientific name Kiwa tyleri, was published last week in the journal PLOS One. And in the science news of the past, on this day in 1860, Thomas Henry Huxley and Samuel Wilberforce held their legendary debate in Oxford. The topic was evolution a theory outlined by Charles Darwin the year before in his book On the Origin of the Species. Accounts of the meeting vary, but one British newspaper reported that Wilberforce, then a bishop of Oxford, asked Huxley, a close colleague of Darwin's, if he would, quote, prefer a monkey for his grandfather or grandmother. Huxley retorted that he would rather have a monkey for his grandfather than a man who would indulge in jokes on such a subject. There were fewer zingers involved when Albert Einstein published his paper on the electrodynamics of moving bodies, also on this day in 1905. The document set forward the physicist's theory of special relativity. It was the third of four influential papers that Einstein published that same year, sometimes known as his Anus Mirabilis, or Miraculous Year. These four works of scholarship would go on to transform the field of physics and earn Einstein a Nobel Prize. And back to the present, there's actually some sad news about another important figure in the science world. Right, Dan? That's right. Uh, In this case, it's a uh, fictional figure. Uh, It's Ranger Rick. The creator of the Raccoon Park Ranger, John Ashley, or Ash Brownridge, died Monday. Brownridge served as an executive director at the National Wildlife Federation for 33 years. In 1958, he debuted his most famous creation in a book called The Adventures of Rick Raccoon. The outdoor-loving critter who wears a brown ranger cap would go on to headline the popular magazines Ranger Rick and Ranger Rick Jr. These publications continue to introduce readers to the natural world and how to protect it. Brownridge was 98. 
You're listening to KGN News How on Earth, the show that makes you smarter. I'm Susan Moran. We've all heard by now how what we eat and how we eat is inextricably connected to our own health as well as the health of the planet. Every decision we make, whether to bake a chocolate cake or buy it from Safeway or to farmer's market or eat it at all, is laden with trade-offs and contradictions. Megan Kimball is a writer who became obsessed with wondering how she could make a difference in the world, at least by not adding to the planet's wounds, by examining her own eating habits. Her debut book, which was just published, is her own personal journey into the scientific, public health and environmental political issues related to food. She warns that we should steer away from processed foods as much as possible, and she says it's possible even on a college student's budget. Kimball's book is called Unprocessed, My City-Dwelling Year of Eating Unprocessed Food. She's also managing editor of the magazine Edible Baja, Arizona. And she'll be speaking about her book tonight at the Boulder Bookstore and tomorrow night at Tattered Cover in Denver. Malcolm, (laughs) Megan, welcome to the show. Hey, happy to be here. So I want to jump right in. And of all the books that have been written about food, including some about my year doing this and that, Barbara Kingsolver and Gary Nebham, why why did you choose processed versus unprocessed? What motivated you to do that? Yeah, I mean, I had read most of those books um, and knew what most of us knew about how destructive factory farming is for our soils, our water, the climate, not to mention how um, the, f- the way the food system produces food is detrimental to our own health, how food is processed today. And I really just kind of wanted to find a way in. You know, I was a graduate student at the time. I made a graduate student salary. I lived in this tiny little apartment with this tiny little kitchen and wanted to figure out a way, okay, what can I do? What can any one eater with limited time and money do to impact the food system and eat more sustainably? So it's someone who's not already living on a farm where it'd be Precisely. easier. Right. Um, and on your graduate student budget, you had this hypothesis, as I alluded to before, that you actually can do it without going to Whole Foods all the time, or simply without a Whole Foods type income. Right. I think that there's this popular perception that Whole Foods, farmer's market foods, locally grown organic foods are more expensive. And it's true that they often are, but I don't think that they're inaccessible for most people. So, you know, it requires thinking about food differently, perhaps spending more money on ingredients. So locally produced bread or cheese or really great tomatoes and combining that into a really simple sandwich or dinner rather than going to buy something that's pre-prepared and paying extra for that process of of preparing it. So it's interesting, there's this ratio of time to money. So you're saying, yeah, it's overall, not for everyone, obviously, but pretty possible economically. Does it take a heck of a lot more time to prepare? Right. Initially, it takes time to figure out, okay, what is processed food? Reading ingredient labels in the supermarkets. During my first month, I spent so much time reading labels, figuring out what is this? What is citric acid? Is it processed? Is it too processed? Enough to make you want to not eat at all. Right, exactly. (laughs) And so that I think that upfront time definitely, um, it's an investment. But once I sort of got going, I don't think it takes significantly more time. You have to think about it a little more. It requires a little bit more planning. You know, I'm a member of a CSA program in Tucson where I live. And so often I'll roast a big bunch of vegetables at the beginning of the week, make a big crock pot of beans, and then I have kind of the staples that I need to make really quick lunches in the morning before I go to work. That's where I always get stuck. Those (laughs) lunches. I should have done it on Sunday, should have done more preparation, because it is so much easier to just go grab a slab of fish or, you know, go find your protein elsewhere. Um, And then how do you define processed food? I know there are a lot of different definitions, processed versus unprocessed. 
Yeah, a lot of the book is exploring that very question. You know, all food is processed. Cooking is a kind of process. Cooking up vegetables is a kind of process. And some of those processes are really good for human nutrition. So I had to figure out where to draw the line with every different kind of food I examined. My overarching view was a food was unprocessed if I could theoretically make it at home. So for example, I ground up wheat berries into whole grain um, whole grain flour. I got a little hand crane grain grinder and ground it up myself, but I couldn't take it a step farther and refine that flour you know, because I didn't have bleach or an industrial machine. And again, was that super time consuming or less and less as you got adept with it? I mean, I think that there are also sort of levels of engagement. I'm not necessarily saying that everyone should grind their own flour at home, but there are ways kind of once you do that, you figure, okay, I can go to the store and conceptualize how whole grain flour is made. So I'm going to look for breads that are made with whole grain flour, sprouted grains. You know, maybe I'll go buy bread from a local baker. So I think that there are kind of different levels of engagement. And then again, sort of why processed versus unprocessed as opposed to you know, organic versus not or local versus conventional imported? There's so many different ways to look at the trade-offs, obviously. Yeah, for me, it was a sort of conceptual framework to understand. I mean, there's so much nutrition science out there of like, what has more antioxidants? What has higher fat, higher nutrition levels? And for me, I kind of wanted something that was like moderate, doable on a day-to-day level. And there's a lot of nutrition research out there that says that it's less important what we're eating than how we're eating it. So the level of processing for a particular food. So that to me is compelling enough to be like, okay, I don't need to necessarily worry over the specifics of... um, you know, what's in, you know, if yogurt, or I mean, if like a blueberry is better than watermelon, okay, we'll eat whole fruit. Um, and so for me, it was just a sort of like a way in, I guess, and a way that could contain both the environmental impact, the health impact, I kind of wanted something that can include all of those things. So it sounds like bottom line, eat less processed food, more yeah. stuff you can make. Yeah, not whatever it is, but by and large. And so let's get into some of the details of that. I know you refer in your book to the former FDA commissioner, David Kessler, mm-hmm. who has written his own books and talks about the big offenders. These triggers are what sugar, fat and salt, that they're just irresistible, particularly in combination. Yeah. And it's sort of astounding to learn how food companies engineer foods so that you want to eat more of them using those triggers of sugar, fat, and salt. And so sugar, if you start reading ingredient labels, is in everything. And that's because food companies know that it's irresistible. It makes us want to eat more. Similarly, salt and fat. And so once you kind of start realizing that, you realize that we're being manipulated as eaters to eat more than we really want or need. And that has an impact on our bodies. Boy, so did you get matter and matter? I mean, is that, I can see how that would be increasingly a motivator. Like they're doing this to control me. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, and wanting to sort of opt out of that and say, you, you, I'm not going to fold to your manipulation. <laughs> so let's take a look at sugar. I mean, calorically speaking, sugar is sugar, right? But as you note in the book, it is very different in terms of how our body takes it in. Yeah. So what's important for sugar is quantity and speed. So how much sugar you're eating and how quickly it arrives to your system. So glucose is glucose. That's what sugar is. And it it matters a little bit to your body where that comes from. But what's more important is, for example, having a soda or an apple. And an apple, that sugar is all bound up in fiber and cellulose. So your body has to work to access those sugars. In a soda, it hits your body almost immediately, which is your liver is what handles most sugar. And that really stresses your body out and has lots of impacts on your health. And so when you think about sugar, it's sort of kind of the the advice is eat less sugar. I have a huge sweet tooth, so I still eat sugar, but I try to avoid it in things that aren't supposed to be sweet. So like mustard or deli meat or marinara sauce, all of which typically have sugar. Go for the chocolate if you're going to go for it. Totally. Have a chocolate bar if you're going to have sugar. <laughs> right. Um, there's so much more in your book. Um, Got to wrap it up 
fairly soon, but I wanted to ask you, so did you go off the wagon? I know this was <laughs> yeah. a year confined time. You're like, okay. <laughs> yeah, so speaking of sugar, I mean, the first thing I had was ice cream and the chocolate chip cookie because I love sweets. But, you know, after I kind of got those things out of my system of like Sonoran hot dogs and kind of the food of Tucson that all my friends had been eating all year I couldn't partake in, I really equilibrated. And today I eat about 90% unprocessed. And what's really nice to partake in are those sort of spontaneous social elements of food of I'm with friends or I'm with my family and everyone's having pizza or X food. And it's really less about the food than the experience about eating it with people I love and care about and want to bond with kind of over that social element of food. And so that's something I really miss during my year. And that's sort of how I've accommodated processed food today. So if there's one or two tips for people you want to take away, what would that be? Yeah, I mean, the first one is to read the ingredient label on all the foods you're buying. Once you start reading them, it's astounding to realize what's in our food. And the other one, I think, is to just sort of, you know, join a CSA, go to the farmer's markets, ask questions of the food system, of the people that are producing it, and think about how your food dollars impact the system. You know, you can spend your money supporting big corporations, or you can spend your money in your own community supporting local producers of food. Well, thank you so much, Megan, for coming on the show. Thank you. That was Megan Kimball, author of Unprocessed, My City-Dwelling Year of Eating Unprocessed Food. She'll speak tonight at Boulder Bookstore at 7.30 and tomorrow night at Tattered Cover in Denver at 7 o'clock. You're tuned in to How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show. I'm Daniel Strain. Now we go from healthy food to the small creatures that make many of our food crops possible. Bees, that is. Across the United States, these buzzing pollinators are key to the growth of countless flowering plants. But many bee species are also disappearing nationwide because of pesticide use, habitat loss, and other threats. Our next guest, Sam Drogi, is a wildlife biologist who studies this vanishing world. He heads up the U.S. Geological Survey's Native Bee Inventory and Monitoring Lab. And for several years, he's also led an effort to photograph bees. Very, very up close. Drogi's bee photos are now the basis for a new book called Bees, an up-close look at pollinators around the world. We're talking with him at his lab at the Patuxent Wildlife Research Center in Maryland to discuss these colorful insects and the threats facing them. Dr. Drogi, uh, welcome to How on Earth. Thanks. Good to be here. I understand that you actually just got back from a trip to collect bees. Right. We were. We just got back from the White Mountains um, uh, of New Hampshire just a few days ago. Well, actually, we got back yesterday, but the last two days were a bit rainy uh, in that area. Good collecting, though, on the day that was good. Good to hear. And w- when most people think of bees, they tend to think about honeybees or bumblebees, but just flipping through your book, it's really clear that bees, there, there's a lot more to them than just that. Yeah, like uh, 40,000 more, um, and the diversity is is huge. Um, in a way, we have this very useful model, the honeybee, and we know a lot about it because it's been um, incorporated back way back into biblical times into our lives, but it's also way out in left field in terms of lifestyle of all the other bees. It's colonial, barb stings, queens, waggle dances, honey, wax, there are components of that in some of the other bees uh, around the world, but most bees are solitary, and most bees have nowhere near that complexity of organization. Is is there a bee that you tell people about to say it can get a lot different from honeybees? 
You mean, is there a particular one? Yeah, or, or, or a group of bees, yeah. Oh, you know, uh, in the book we highlight a whole range of bees. I'll give you maybe a couple of tiny vignettes. So 20% of all bees are actually um, kleptoparasites. So they're like the um, cuckoos uh, in Europe or brown-headed cowbirds here where they lay their eggs in the nests of other bees and then bad things happen to the host baby when um, the uh, parasitic bee wakes up eats all its food and merges later. Um, you have other bees that feed on carrion, um, uh, not very many, those are tropical. You have bees that make nests out of uh, down, bees that make nests out of resin, uh, bees that nest in snail shells, um, bees that have all kinds of um, strange, um, I, I don't want to call them adornments, but um, parts to their body that we can't figure out what they're for, you know, like uh, heart-shaped, dangly things from the tips of their antennae, huge uh, projections from the uh, the rear of their legs, um, spikes at the ends of their tails, if you want to call them tails, and it, it just it really goes on from there. And then the 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 details of their life history. For the few that we know, and I just want to emphasize how little we really know about these native species, can be just as fascinating as what we know about honeybees. But the the organization is so very different. Wow, snail shells, that's amazing. Um, and the, the detail in your book is, is incredible. I mean, you could count the hairs on the, the bees' feet if you wanted to. I mean, how do you actually go about taking this, this high def of a photo? Yeah, and uh, that's originally why we got into the business, is that um, I had um, been contacted by the de- uh, Department of Army, of all people, and their, um, uh, what is it, the health services, the... I'm going to get it wrong, but it's their, um, it's the health branch that deals with uh, issues of service people throughout all the branches, but in particular in this case the Army. And one of their problems is that um, uh, in particularly in bases that are far away from the United States and other countries, they were getting um, all kinds of uh, insect-borne diseases, and they have to figure out what the vector is. So people would, they don't have entomologists on these bases, so they, people would catch these insects and send them back. And inevitably, it took a long period of time. The insect was probably in poor shape and sometimes wasn't even the right one. So they developed this, this method, and the method is to truncate a lot of detail. You're taking a, let's back up. To take that level of detail, you have to have a lot of magnification. You have to have a really high, um, a good camera, but nothing special. You can buy these cannons online um, with a big sensor field. Uh, but the problem is the depth of field uh, at the highest uh, level, like 5x, would be 120th of a millimeter. So nothing would be in focus. So what happens is we'll take 25 to maybe 150, depending on how big the specimen is, um, individual pictures at minutely uh, different distances. And then there's now software that combines all those pictures, those 100-plus pictures, into uh, one picture by selecting and um, and merging the pictures sort of like you would do a panorama, but only the portions that are in focus. So sort of like stitching together maybe a mosaic or something like that. Yeah, but I find it's uh, it, it has to be much more complicated because how does it know what's in focus? And it has to deal with changes in magnification as you, you know, zoom around on that bee and the fact that it shifts across the, the space that you're taking the picture in. It's... It's delightful that it's there, but I would hate to have been the person that developed it. 
And uh, to switch topics a little bit, um, in May, a task force assembled by the White House uh, released a port report that detailed strategies for actually saving some bee species. Uh, what does it say to you that uh, even uh, the president is taking note of these very small animals? Uh, well, we're very excited by this. And um, I think that this is the very first time that a president has made any kind of proclamation or decree that involved an insect. Um, perhaps there was a pest that was involved somewhere down the line. But um, it's it's a sign that the uh, as a biologist who's been in the uh, game in the government for over 30 years, that we're shifting from what was just simply a kind of user-based animal situation where if you couldn't eat the animal, it wasn't really worth studying, to now um, any biologist on any of the national parks or Fish and Wildlife Service refuges, they're totally... Um, up for hearing about how to manage their refuges and things for the insects as well. So the problem is, is that we're very far behind, maybe 100 years behind the bird people and just understanding life history and natural history of all the 4,000 species that are estimated to be in North America, 400 of which don't even have names at this point. And is the concern that because bee species are so diverse and so poorly known that we may be losing some of these species before they've even been discovered? Yeah, so about 25% of the bees uh, in North America that collect pollen are highly specialized. In other words, they're only going to feed their babies pollen from one genus or maybe a handful of genus genera and sometimes just one species of plant. And um, if that plant is not there, then that bee is not there either. Um, so it's, it's the, the diversity of bees is directly linked to the diversity of, or biodiversity of plants. So uh, in any area, or, or globally, or throughout a region, yeah, when you start losing that plant diversity, you're automatically losing that bee diversity. So it's an easy surrogate for people who don't know much about bees, which is almost everyone, it turns out, because we know a lot about flowers and plants. So we can manage our lands for this biodiversity, and then directly what we're doing is is saving um, some of these bee species. And we, we have to wrap up in a second, but to end on a positive note, do you have a favorite bee? Gosh, do I have a favorite bee? Uh, I guess the orchid bees are super sexy because they're bright, metallic, glinting blues and greens. So I will, um, I'll put my hat on that one for now. Wonderful. Well, uh, Dr. Drogi, thank you so much for talking with us today. You bet. That was Sam Drogi. He's the co-author of Bees, an up-close look at pollinators around the world. And if you'd like to see some of his bee photos, you can follow the links we'll post on our website to the Native Bee Inventory and Monitoring Lab's Flickr site. That's all for this edition of How on Earth. Susan Moran is our executive producer this quarter. The theme music was written and produced by Josh Cutler. Additional music from Badenia Le Frere Kula Bailey and A Piece of Ebony. And thanks to Maeve Conran for engineering the show and Dan, my co-host, for uh, working on the headlines. So if you can't listen to How on Earth at our regular time, no worries. Just go to howonearthradio.org and subscribe to our podcast using the iTunes button. Questions or comments, call the KGNU comment line at 303-447-9911. For How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show, I'm Daniel Strain. And I'm Susan Moran.